series on how to read and study the Bible. The Bible is a great book. I know you already know that, but our fleshes are often deceived into thinking that it's not profitable, it's not exciting, I've got so many other things to do, I'll just have to get to that Bible reading later. But the Bible declares itself and, that, and shows itself in our lives to be a life-giving word. And that's what the, um, the disciples even said, right? When Jesus was declaring himself to be uh, the bread of life and to be true food and true drink, people who were listening to him, many of them left. And Jesus asked his disciples, you don't want to go away too, do you? And they say, in John chapter 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. They recognized there was nothing else. That's true for us too. The Bible is the word of life. Not just what Jesus said, but also what he said through the human authors that the Spirit um, inspired. So, we, we want to give that, that, the Bible that, that place of prominence. Today we take our last look at biblical genres, focusing specifically on prophecy. Let's review some of the things that we've learned in the last two sessions exploring the other genres. First of all, what is a genre again? That's right. It's just a type. Genre means type. And when we're talking about biblical genres, we're talking about different types of literature. And let's review some of those things by um, looking at specific books. Think about 1 Samuel. What type or what genre is 1 Samuel? It's narrative. Very good. And what's a narrative again, Steve? That's right. It's a story. And specifically there, that's a, a history book. And when we look at a book like 1 Samuel, there are two nuances we want to keep in mind that I presented to you. What's one of them? reading a story, history with different characters. Very good. You don't always necessarily want to imitate what righteous people do in a story because God might be doing something unique with that person at that time, or they might themselves be making a bad choice. You have to confirm it with other scriptures. You have to see what the rest of the scriptures have to say before you imitate something. And there was something else we pointed out about narrative. What we want to remember. Remember we talked about this with Joseph and his dreams? What do we not want to do? Yeah, that's exactly right. We want to make sure that we don't go too far um, without evidence in the Bible. Unless the Bible gives us enough to make a judgment on what a character does or a judgment on a situation, we don't want to go there. We want to, we want to stop. That's very good, Amy. We don't want to go too far. So remember that with narrative. Let's look at another book. Luke. What kind of genre is that? Also narrative. But it contains another genre. What other genre? Parables. Yes, and that's one that we talked about. I mean, parables are just like narratives. What's the difference? Both stories. Yeah, exactly. One's an illustration, the other one's actually true. It's actually a true story or a history. 
the parable is essentially just a story to help prove an idea or to show, show something. There's one thing I, I emphasize to you to keep in mind when it comes to interpreting parables. What was that? That's right. You have to rely on the context of the parables. Otherwise, they could mean anything. They could mean anything. But thankfully, we get explanations of the parables, and even when we don't get explanations, there are clues in the context to help interpret those fictional stories. Good. So, 1 Samuel, Luke. What about Romans? What genre is the book of Romans? This one has a kind of an advanced-sounding name. Say that again? Yeah, or what we called exposition. Very good. Yes, it's expository, meaning that it's an explaining or even a, an, an argument. It's an explaining book, an argument. I think I heard Stevie say doctrine, and, and that's true too. But we can think about it in terms of like a, an explanation or an exposition. Um, for exposition, there's one thing that we want to pay particular attention to. As the author um, gives us the argument, what do we want to pay attention to? Exactly, very good. If you want to analyze anybody's argument, you want to understand it, you've got to see how he lays it out. You've got to pay attention to the structure. So do that with books like Romans. Going into the Old Testament now, Song of Solomon. What type of genre is that? It is poetry and something else. Wisdom literature. Yeah, wisdom literature is like a subset there of some of the Old Testament books. Let's talk about poetry first. What technique is uniquely prominent in Hebrew poetry? Repetition, we could, uh, I used a different term for it last week. Do you remember? You're right. It is essentially just repetition. What we call parallelism. Yeah. I don't know if I actually defined it for you last week, so let me give you a definition. Parallelism is that similarity or correspondence between two lines or section of Hebrew poetry in both its ideas and in its grammatical structure. And uh, we explored last week why parallelism is so useful. Um, one line, but just to emphasize what it is again, one line will say the same thing as another line, but in a slightly different way or with a little bit of new information. How can we use parallelism to aid us in our interpretation of Hebrew poetry? Very good. We can see what the author sees as important or what idea he's trying to emphasize in a certain section because of that repetition. And we saw that through some different passages like in Jonah. But parallelism also does something else for us. Yeah, Roy. Certainly that's one of the ways that parallelism is useful. Um, but in terms of something that we can use to help us interpret a section, um, parallelism does something else. Remember we saw this a little bit in Psalm 19 when I was talking about the sun. Yeah, Brian. It shows us how seemingly Very good, very good. And we saw that not just in Psalm 19, but even, um, I think, one of the Proverbs, where it says um, that a righteous person hates, hates falsehood, but the wicked man acts shamefully and disgustingly. They say, well, that, that doesn't seem related. Falsehood in one line, and then it talks about shameful actions in another, or it talks about being disgusting in a second line. But we, as we saw last week, you can use, because you know there's parallelism there, because you know there's contrast, you use some of the ideas in the second line, and you 
put them into the first, and some of the ideas in the first line, he put them into the second. So parallelism can allow us to see how unrelated, seemingly unrelated sections do fit together. Song of Solomon is also wisdom literature. Wisdom literature, um, on the whole, they're books that, that are very practical. They give advice on wise living, usually from someone who's older, more experienced. And we focused on one, uh, the Proverbs in particular in terms of nuances of wisdom literature that we want to keep in mind when we interpret. I listed a proverb here. This is uh, one of the verses in Proverbs. Proverbs 18.23, The poor man utters supplications, but the rich man answers roughly. This is a good proverb to bring back to your mind, hopefully, two of the nuances that we want to remember when it comes to interpreting the Proverbs. What's one? Yeah. That's, very, that's right. Many Proverbs give you general principles, but they do allow for some exceptions. Now, some Proverbs are not like that, especially when they talk about moral things. It's going to be pretty absolute. God, God, always, hates, um, God always hates lying lips, or God always hates uh, adultery. But many Proverbs do give something that's generally true. Maybe not every rich man is going to answer roughly, but on the whole, that's, that's what happens in life. What else, though? There's another nuance with the Proverbs. Very good. And we can see that even in this verse. We may say, all right, generally, rich people treat poor people, um, treat poor people roughly. They don't feel like they need to treat them well. But what should we do? You see a proverb like this, how should we react? What do you think? Yeah, we're not going to act like what most people do, right? And that's emphasized in some other proverbs where it says, God made the rich man and the poor man. They have a common bond. They're both made by God. They both have dignity from God. We ought to treat them that way. Most people won't. And if we're a poor person, we should expect that. We should expect that uh, maybe rich people, even if we're not, not so poor, they're not going to treat us very well because they don't feel like they have to. But we're not going to act like that, especially if we're rich. And the New Testament emphasizes that as well. So remember that with Proverbs. Finally, we have Exodus. What genre or genres is Exodus? Partially narrative, also heard. Law, very good. I think there's some poetry in there too, but Exodus is one of the law books. Uh, just to make sure we're all on the same page here, do we as New Covenant believers have to obey the various provisions of the Old Testament law? Okay, what, uh, can you explain, Amy? It's a, well, like right. It's certainly, um, there's different ways that people emphasize the distinction. Some say that um, there are certain things in the Old Testament law that we still keep because they're repeated by Jesus in the, Old or in the New Testament, um, and, but the ceremonial things, they, they don't exist. But I think you're essentially saying the same thing if you also say, we don't have to keep the Old Testament law. We just follow what Jesus says. They essentially are telling you to do the same thing. Because the Old Testament law was fulfilled, right? Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And he did fulfill the law, and the apostles confirmed in the book of Acts that it wasn't something that people had to follow going forward. When the Gentiles asked, or when people asked, do Gentiles need to be circumcised? Do they need to keep the law to be saved? Um, the apostles 
came back with the answer of saying, no, we couldn't do this to be saved. Why would we make them do this? No, instead, they're going to follow the commands, commands of Christ in the, in the New Testament. So we have that in our minds when it comes to law, but studying the law books in the Old Testament is still greatly profitable. And what are two things that we can still see even in the law books? Right, we do see the character of God in the different laws. We see his holiness, we see his beauty, we see his compassion, even in things like how he says you should build a tabernacle, or in um, uh, laws between uh, laws for society, what, how, how, what men can, can do with their wives, or um, what, what a sick person is allowed to do in society, whether, or how, how they can be clean or unclean. We see the character of God in those laws. We also see something else. Certainly that's one of the, the um, principles that's associated with the character of God, and, and that's a principle that is presented in the Old Testament clearly and also emphasized in the New Testament. That's certainly true. We also see some pictures. What do we see pictures of? Yeah, pictures of Christ in the New Covenant, right? The New Testament writers bring this out for us. They take things like the Passover or the Sabbath or... Um, the Holy of Holies. And they show how these things actually picture a greater reality in the New Testament. So very good. If you looked at these different genres, six different genres, main genres in the Bible, there is some overlap. Some books contain more than one. There's one final genre I do want to talk about, and that's prophecy. But before I do that, I want to take some time to, to address something that I think is important. When it comes to understanding the Old Testament, especially Old Testament law and prophecy, but really any part of the Old Testament, there's something that we really need to be careful about. And as I explain this, it may be that some of you have a, a, a different view on this issue I'm about to present. If that's the case, I hope to challenge your understanding, hope to sharpen you by what I'm about to say. But we do need to remember, when reading the Old Testament as a whole, we want to be careful that we do not merely, merely spiritualize an Old Testament passage to the neglect of its original content and context. We want to make sure that we don't spiritualize a passage to the neglect of its original content and context. context. If that sounds a little bit hard to understand, let me say it another way. Um, we, we want to make sure... No, let me, let, me, let me say it like this. When I say spiritualize, what do I mean by that? And that's when we take the text as symbolically talking about something else, either in the New Testament or something outside the Bible, even if doing so doesn't fit with the original context. We can do this if we're not careful. We want to twist an Old Testament passage to symbolically say something in line with New Testament truth. We have to be careful with this. And this can be tricky because, as we just discussed, some Old Testament things are specifically brought out by New Testament writers as having an additional reality to it, additional implications. For instance, the author in the book of Hebrews points out that the Sabbath was a picture of a greater reality. The resting on the seventh day that God required of his people actually pointed to the greater rest that is in Christ. That he is our rest and he brings us into this rest eternally. That... Um, in a sense, we're, we're continually in the Sabbath. So that was something that 
um, there, was a certain, there was a certain understanding of the Sabbath in the Old Testament, but it was added to in the New Testament. Now, the New Testament were guided by the Holy Spirit as they made these parallels, and, I would argue, their parallels are fair to the Old Testament context. We can get in trouble, though, when we um, look for symbolic meaning when it's not necessarily there. And the New Testament writers have not clarified the connection for us. Let me show you an example. Open your Bibles to Numbers 5. Numbers 5, I'll be looking at verses 11 to 31. This is a unique law in the Old Testament. And I'll show you what spiritualizing this might look like. Numbers 5. I'm not going to read the whole section. Instead, I'm going to paraphrase it for you. You can look at it. This is called, in the text, the Law of Jealousy. Well, what was the Law of Jealousy? It was a law that says if a a husband was suspicious, was suspicious that his wife had committed adultery, but he didn't have any proof. He did not have any evidence, but he just still felt like she she had been unfaithful. He could have the priest conduct a ceremony in which the priest writes down a number of curses on a scroll. He then washes the ink of these curses into a cup of water. The wife, then, is asked to swear that she has not been unfaithful and then to drink the cup of water. If she has not been unfaithful, the curses will have no effect and she will be able to have children. But if she has been unfaithful, as the text says, well, and her thighs will waste away. I think the implication being that she's going to become barren, that God's going to curse her womb. Now, this is a very interesting law. We could say a number of things about it, but some interpreters... In view of the fact that Jesus says the Old Testament is about him, which, by the way, is totally true. He makes that clear a number of times. He says, do you think you have hope in the law? These things are written about me. And he even explained to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, um, um, from the Old Testament, things about himself. Now, in view of that fact, some interpreters look at this law and other sections of the Old Testament scripture, and they try to find how Jesus is pictured in it. They look for some sort of uh, correlation between the things in that specific law to things about Jesus. And they come up with something like the following. God is the husband, and he has the spirit of jealousy. We are the wife who is going to be tested for unfaithfulness. Whether we proclaim our own righteousness or not, we will all eventually undergo the judgment in which we will be forced to drink the cup that proves what we are. If we are clean and faithful, God's curse will not be on us. And we will have intimate fellowship with him as our husband forever. If we have been unfaithful, God's curse will manifest itself in our eternal damnation and suffering. Explanation may even go on to say, since we've all sinned according to Romans, we're all going to be shown to be unfaithful spouses. And we will be cursed if not for Jesus, our husband um, himself, interceding for us. And he takes the cup on our behalf and drinks the curse. So they would say, what, on, what is on display here is more than a law about dealing with marital suspicion. It is a picture of our eventual testing by God as to whether we've been faithful or not, and also showing our need for an intercessor. At first, this explanation of the passage seems plausible, or even compelling. We can get behind that, that idea. We say, yeah, I'm going to be tested, and I'm going to be shown to what, what I really am. But... The symbol breaks down if we try to remain faithful 
in our interpretation while also considering the law's original context. For instance, the law is provided to deal with a husband's suspicions. He could be right. Maybe she is adulterous. But he could be wrong. Maybe she's not. The law provides a way for dealing with something that cannot be proven with any evidence. That's the whole point, right? But that's not the way God judges us. That's not the way that he's going to deal with us. He has the evidence. And according to Revelation, there's going to be ample evidence when he says, here's, what, um, here's what's been chronicled about you, and this is, this is how I'm going to determine your eternal fate. Books will be opened with all the things that we've done. And the book of life will also be opened to see if our names are in it. The picture here in Numbers is of an uncertain husband. But God is quite certain of our adultery. Just as he makes clear in the book of Hosea, um, where he talks about us being like an adulteress, and Israel being like an adulteress. Moreover, this ceremony is more about testing than judging. God is going to show whether this woman woman is righteous or not based on the results of a trial. And God does do that to us, but it's not done at the end of time. We also undergo something that shows whether we truly belong to God or not. And what are those things? What do you mean? That's true. And, and how is that spirit going to manifest itself in terms of showing others or showing ourselves whether we really belong to God? That's right. The fruit of the spirit, obedience, especially how we react to what? Trials, right? And, and temptations. The word trial itself means testing, right? We are tested. <coughs> we are shown to be whether, or shown whether we really belong to God or not. But that's something that happens continually in our lives. It's not something that, that takes place um, at the end of our lives. And that's certainly something that Jesus couldn't come in and take on our behalf. So, there are other things we could say, but I hope you get the point here. There is something here that connects with the New Testament. There are principles here, you could even say, I guess, pattern. There's a principle here that does, that is emphasized in the Old Testament that is certainly emphasized in the New Testament, and I think that might be abundantly clear, the idea that God knows, right? That's the whole point of this ceremony. Man might not know, your husband might not know, but God knows, and he will judge based on his knowledge. This woman is going to be accountable for her faithfulness, and we too will be accountable. We're going to be held accountable based on God's knowledge. So what am I really getting at here? Even though there are principles from the Old Testament that do connect with the New Testament, we can work really hard to make the Old Testament, or sections of the Old Testament, directly symbolic of Jesus or something in the New Testament when the passage just doesn't support that kind of point-by-point symbolism. That's the idea I'm trying to get across. And if we, if we try and make it work, our symbolic reasoning will get more and more complex as we try to force the passage to adhere to some pattern that it doesn't actually adhere to. Let me give you a brief uh, other example. The book Song of Solomon. <clears throat> Historically, many have seen this book to not only be about the love of husband and wife, probably Solomon and the Shulamite, but also a symbolic description of God's love for Israel or, God, or Christ's love for the church. Now, this must be true in a certain sense because Song of Solomon depicts marriage. And Ephesians 5 tells us something very revealing about marriage. The pastor's even gone over it lately. What is that? 
That's right. Marriage is a picture of Christ's love for the church. This was this was um, this is a profound mystery according to the, um, according to the apostle. So. If this is going to talk about marriage, then yes, we are going to see some things that are going to inform our understanding of Christ in the church. And certainly, the affection and devotion that's put on display in this book is going to tie into the affection and devotion that we should feel for Christ and the uh, affection that he actually has for us. However, if we try to make Song of Solomon more specific than that in its symbolism, if we try and pull out the different verses as to what, what they mean for the church or what they mean for Christ, it's going to be hard for us to make any sense of the symbolism. Because in the original context, Song of Solomon is an unashamed celebration of romantic and erotic love and marriage. The husband, again, probably Solomon, is enamored with his wife and all her parts. And the wife, the Shulamite, feels the same way about her husband. So if we try and pull out symbolic description, it just gets weird. For example, Song of Solomon, chapter 1. You can actually turn there. Go over to Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon 1, verses 5 to 7. This is the, the woman speaking, the Shulamite. Verses 5 to 7 in chapter 1, she says, I am black but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am swarthy, for the sun has burned me. My mother's sons are angry with me. They made me a caretaker of the vineyards, but I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Tell me, O you whom my soul loves, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? So, in the rest of the, the context here, this is, um, this is poetry that, that is going to go back to more of uh, that romantic and, uh, and erotic love in this book. But if we try and make this directly instructive about Jesus and the church, we'd have to come up with something like this. All right, the woman was stuck in the sun. Her brothers are angry at her. They made her go into this uncomfortable, forced labor in the vineyard. This is persecution. This is the persecution of the church. And she's still beautiful in that. Well, how do we know that's really what it is? How do we know we're not just making up that meaning? Or she says, I have not taken care of my own vineyard. What is that supposed to represent in the church? Certainly persecution is not in mind in the original. I, I would suggest that the, this woman is merely aware that she's different from most of the other women in the society, but she's still self-assured in her own beauty. If we try and tease out symbolic meaning of each part of this book and apply it to Jesus and the church, it becomes an interpretive free-for-all. When the husband praises his wife's nose, what does that signify for the church? Or when the, the wife praises her husband's legs, what does that signify for, the, for, for Jesus? We can make the different sections of this book and really the Old Testament mean almost anything if we assume there's an allegory in each part. Is this really that big of a deal? Is this actually happening? Well, yes, I think it is that big of a deal because it, has to go, it goes back to this idea of the perspicuity of the Old Testament and the perspicuity of Scripture. And if you're wondering what that means, perspicuity is just the idea of the clarity, the understandableness of Scripture. Can we actually believe what it says? Or is there a code, is there a code that we have to have for each passage in the Old Testament to actually understand it? And this is a, or not just a code maybe from the New Testament, maybe from a code, a code from outside the Bible. Maybe we need man's philosophy and scientific ideas for us to truly understand what a passage is actually saying. 
I hope you see the implication there. This is exactly why many Christians can justify their belief in a non-literal six-day creation. That is, they don't believe in the six-day creation because they take something else, um, something from uh, outside the Old Testament, really outside the Bible, and they say, this is what you need to understand the passage. They're not literal days, they're ages. Science shows us this. God, the people in the Old Testament, they didn't know it at the time. And even the, right, the people in the New Testament, they didn't quite get it either. But now we get it because we've, we've got this thing to understand the code. But doing this means that we've compromised the understandableness of that Old Testament passage. God misinformed generations of believers if the creation doesn't really uh, mean what it says. The days are not days, or the days are not days. Sorry, guys, they're actually millions of years. <clears throat> the same issue comes up when we talk about Israel's future or the millennial kingdom. We have to ask ourselves: Are we being, are we staying fair to the original content and context of a passage? Or are we reading into the passage some meaning consistent with a system that we believe in or that we want to believe in? The concept that we want to arrive to is that we have to stop where the Bible stops. It's the same thing that we said about narrative, right? If there's not enough evidence to say a character did right or wrong in a certain situation, don't try to. Same thing here. Unless we get clear evidence that an Old Testament passage is talking about something from the New Testament, like a New Testament writer tells us that, we should stop. We should just let it be. Stop where the Bible stops. Again, I'm not saying that there aren't timeless principles in the Old Testament that don't connect with New Testament things. You could say that there's a pattern of sorts, but in terms of detailing point-by-point point parallels between the Old Testament and New Testament and that type of allegory or symbolism, we, do, we don't want to go too far and do that. <clears throat> we must be careful not to falsely declare that God said something or meant something when we don't have evidence of that. Now, some of you might, be, might have an objection in your mind, especially if you know the Bible well. You might say, didn't the New Testament writers take the Old Testament out of context sometimes? Didn't they interpret the Old Testament in a way that, if you read the Old Testament, you would never have seen that implication? There's no way that implication could fit. Didn't they change the meaning of some Old Testament passages? Took some passages that didn't seem like they'd be prophetic and then made them prophetic? This is a fair question. Admittingly, some of the connections the New Testament writers make to the Old Testament do seem like they they take it out of context or that they change the meaning. But I would argue that this is only at first glance. I can't go through the, the full defense of, 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 what, of that assertion, but I can point you to somebody else who did a really great job. Uh, I put his name up here. Michael Vlock, <clears throat> in the 2012 Shepherds Conference, did a, a lesson called Not Up for Discussion, in which he examined how the New Testament writers use the Old Testament and trying to answer the question of, did they take things out of context? Did they change the meaning? Um, I would totally advise you to listen to that, listen to the argument there. And just to give you a little preview, it says, no, they don't, they don't take it out of context. But in terms of how that is true, I would love you to go and listen to that. You can find it at shepherdsconference.org, www.shepherdsconference.org. But if I, can get a, if I can put a cap on what I'm presenting to you right now, when it, when it comes to understanding the Old Testament, here's what we need to remember. Unless a New Testament writer points out the symbolism or extra meaning of an Old Testament passage, 
don't look for a symbolic or allegorical interpretation. You can look for principles that are consistent from the Old Testament to the New Testament, but we want to stop where the Bible stops. The Bible does give us a warning in this area. Um, two verses that came to my mind. Proverbs 30, 5 and 6 says, Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, or he will reprove, reprove you, and you'll be proved a liar. And then, of course, there's the admonition in Revelation 22, where the writer warns, don't add to this prophecy and don't take away from it. Or you'll add the curses of this book or take away your place in, in God's eternal kingdom. Now, with such warnings, you might be like, oh, well, I don't want to mess it up. It's gonna, I, I'm, I don't want to dare interpret something because I could be wrong. Is that where we should go? Of course not. The Bible is understandable. It is interpretable. But it's all about evidence. It's about context. It's about staying true to what actually appears in the text. It's on that basis that we understand or interpret something. And that's the thing that allows us to come to a unity of the faith, right? Even if we don't all believe the same thing at a certain passage, if we have the same standards for understanding a passage, like how does this fit in context, how does the, or what are the words actually that appear in the passage, then we can come to an understanding together. We can unite around the truth. But if our understanding is based on preconceived patterns in our own minds, we'll never come to a unity of the faith. Because there's no way that we can, we can come to the same understanding. So, to, to sum up, we interpret based on evidence and stop where the Bible stops. Questions or comments before I move on? Yeah, Ian. Yeah. That's a really good question because it certainly is, it is popular um, to, to look for Jesus or people who suggest that we ought to search for Jesus in each section of the Old Testament. And, we, and like I said, we can't get away from the idea that Jesus says the Old Testament is about him. That has to be true. And while that's true ultimately about the Old Testament, it does not mean that Jesus appears directly in every verse. You can say, ah, okay, this is the law about circumcision. Jesus must, Jesus must be one of the parts of this ceremony. It may be something that points out the character of God. or um, Like if you, if you look at the different sacrifices, like for example, there's a sacrifice for Adam and Eve, right? Uh, or we, we can see it as a sacrifice because an animal is killed to provide clothes for them. Or there's Abel's sacrifice. Can we say, oh, that's Jesus. That's a picture of Jesus right there. No, not necessarily. It certainly is a principle of sacrifice, right? That you need, um, that the pattern is that God, if you want to approach God, sacrifice is involved. And that does connect with Jesus. But in terms of actually saying, oh, that's Jesus right there. Or Jesus is this, this part of the symbol. And, and um, here's this thing that happened to Jesus in, in his life, and it's being uh, paralleled in the Old Testament. This must be a prophecy about Jesus. We can't go that far. So to... Answer your, answer your question. Yes, the Old Testament is all about Jesus. He does appear throughout the Old Testament, but that doesn't mean he appears directly in every verse. Does 
that makes sense? Other questions or comments? Yeah. Yeah, it is, it is really important, and I think it is something that is all around us. And I don't want to say, if, if you are, have listened to a teacher who, who does some of that, where they, they seem to talk about symbols of, of Christ in the Old Testament when they might not necessarily be there, it doesn't mean that you should suddenly stop listening to those teachers. They don't have anything good to say. But I do think that in terms of what, what, is, the, what is the correct way to understand the Old Testament, and really the Bible in general, it is that uh, we need clear evidence that something is symbolic. And rather than say, well, the New Testament writers thought that this, this particular thing was symbolic, so we must assume that everything is symbolic. We don't want to go that. We don't want to go there. They're, they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, so maybe there's a situation where it looks like something is out of context, but the Spirit, the Spirit um, helped them with that. We, we don't have that, that same ability. So we really should rely on what, what they did. Other questions or comments? Yeah. Yeah, we certainly see more obvious exposition in the New Testament. Uh, the genres are a little bit different in the Old Testament. I don't, I, I'm trying to be very careful about how I present this because I don't want to disavow the continuity of the Bible. It's not like um, uh, there, was a, there was a plan in the Old Testament and then God, God uh, how, how do I want to say this? It's not like people, as some, might, some people might claim, it's not like people got saved one way in the Old Testament and they get saved a different way in the New Testament. No, that's always been consistent. And uh, you can see that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But there, there are certain things that were unique to the Old Testament at that time. And so if we try and read some sort of New Testament meaning into that, it's just not going to work because some things are different. Some things are different between the two, um, the two pieces of Revelation. Any other comments, questions? All right. I, again, 
go listen to Michael Vlach and what he has to say because he fills out this discussion even more. With that, let's take a look at our last genre, though, prophecy. I wanted to bring that up because this is certainly an issue that, that comes up when it comes to dealing with prophecy, so I wanted to bring that to your attention. So, prophecy. When we think of prophecy, what do we usually think of? Okay, end times. Uh, a lot of times the end times, but if someone says, oh, that person's a prophet, or he does prophecy, what does that mean he does? Yeah, Rob. That's right. He tells the future. He's some, someone who knows the future. Now, I know you've probably heard this from the pulpit before, but it's worth repeating. When we talk about prophecy in the biblical sense, it does not always refer to the explanation of future events. Prophecy is merely someone speaking the words of God on God's behalf. He's like a, a message bearer. As Hendricks, our author of our book here, Living by the Book, as he puts it, prophecy is not always foretelling, but it is always forthtelling. Now, I'm going to use a number of examples today that, that are about future events, but don't get the wrong idea. Like in Hosea, when God identifies sinful, idolatrous Israel as a whore, when he likens her to that, that's prophecy. Even though he's not necessarily saying something there about future events in Israel, he is speaking for God by saying that. Um, this is why some people sometimes characterize what pastors and teachers do with the Bible as prophecy that they are declaring forth the words of God, not by direct revelation into their minds, but by the direct revelation that God has provided, that is, the scriptures itself. <clears throat> in a sense, we could say the whole Bible is prophecy, but there are certain books with this unique declarative setup, where there's a, a, essentially just a person who God gives messages to, and he says, tell this to Israel, tell, us to that, tell this to that person. These are the prophecy books. What are some examples of prophecy books in the Bible? Daniel, yes, definitely. What else? Zachar uh, yeah, Zachariah? Another one? Ezekiel, yes. Isaiah, Amos. Uh, there's lots of, lots of different prophecy books in the Old Testament, but Revelation in the New Testament, sections of other books, like there's prophecy that appears in the Gospels. So we do see it all over the Scriptures. But in terms of the books themselves that are characterized by, by prophecy, they usually have a tone of warning and judgment. A lot of the prophecy is, has to do with warning and judgment. It doesn't mean that there aren't interspersed in those warnings words of hope and encouragement, but they often have this, uh, this very warning tone. Uh, let's see. Some people like to make a distinction between apocalyptic prophecy and regular prophecy. What does apocalyptic refer to? Judgment specifically when? Not just future, but... Yeah, we're talking about the end of time, right? Not the more specific part of the future, the end of time. They say, okay, the apocalyptic prophecies, you need to treat them in a special way. I would disagree with that, because a lot of the apocalyptic prophecies or things about the end times appear right alongside the other, what I guess they would call regular prophecies, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. I would argue that we treat them both the same way. <clears throat> now, they do have this tone, and also prophecy books use a lot of symbolism. They use extensive use of symbolism. Now, we just talked about spiritualizing and the danger of looking for symbols that aren't there. So you might be saying, uh-oh, oh no, symbolism, how am I going to be able to understand it? I don't want to spiritualize it. How am I going to be able to interpret it correctly? How can I recognize the symbolism? Some care certainly is required. However, I would say that figurative language 
and symbolism is a lot more straightforward than we might think. I'll talk a little bit about it today, but next week I'll talk about how to recognize something as symbolic in a prophecy or other type of um, genre. But there are two nuances, one about symbolism, two nuances that I want to stress when it comes to prophecy, when, we come, when it comes to interpreting prophecy. Um, these are the things we want to keep in mind. First, use context to interpret prophetic symbols. <clears throat> This sounds familiar, right? It sounds just like what we do with parables. That's because, in a lot of ways, parables and the, sim the symbolic messages of prophecy are the same. You have to have the context. You've got to rely on the context if you're going to interpret those symbols correctly. Uh, let me see. Because we have to understand something about symbols. Symbols were put in prophecies not to make them more difficult to understand, but easier to understand. They're trying to make things clearer for us, not more obscure. And this is why we use symbols today, right? Uh, symbols are concise and they're very informative. This is why um, you might send a smiley to somebody in a text message or uh, draw a heart on something or even use political cartoons. They can give a lot of meaning in a very short amount of space. So God used symbols too. We use symbols all the time in our own language. We see them in the Bible. We've got to use context to understand them. Let me show you this with a few examples. Uh, turn to Revelation. Revelation 17. Now I know we're jumping into the middle of the book here. It'd be useful to have read all the way up to chapter 17, but we'll have to do our best. Revelation 17, verses 1 to 6. This is a symbolic section. Let's see what it says. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality, and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. Okay, these verses describe a woman, a harlot, sitting on a beast. The harlot is even given a name. She's called Babylon. But what does this mean? Or what is the harlot? What is the beast? What's the significance of these horns or these different heads? Well, look at the context. Is there anything that appears there that would be helpful for understanding? Yeah, Amy. Exactly, exactly, right? Just like with the parables, a lot of times with symbols and prophecy, there's an explanation sitting close by. Here, it's right in the next verse. Sometimes it's a little bit uh, further along in the text. But we do get the explanation here. And I'll, and I'll read. Uh, for, the sake of, for the sake of time, I won't read it. But the, the angel, or the person speaking with John, explains what the different parts of this picture mean. He says the, those seven heads are seven mountains. They also um, represent seven kingdoms. Five have come, one is, one has not yet come. And he talks about the significance of the horns. And um, it explains other parts of this picture. So 
just looking at the context, we get a huge, huge uh, benefit. We get a huge help in our understanding. But not just the immediate context. The other parts of Revelation are going to shed more light on this picture. For instance, if we go to Revelation 13, you don't have to turn there, but uh, I'll just mention some things from it. In Revelation 13, we get the beast actually being summoned. This beast that has these different heads and horns. We see the dragon, which is identified for us as the devil, bringing this beast up out of the sea. And we're told that this beast will have authority to reign for a certain amount of time. And he's going to reign over the whole earth. So we're getting some more information about this symbol from another part of Revelation. Or when it comes to Babylon, the very next chapter, chapter 18, is going to have a lot to say about Babylon. This um, the city that is characterized as a harlot, as a woman. And one of the things we learn from Revelation 18 is that the city is known for something, and it's the thing that people are mourning about once Babylon is destroyed. What's the city known for? Yeah, it's the commerce, right? The people who are mourning the city are the merchants and those who are bringing cargo to it. And they're so sad that all their merchandise is gone, all their business is gone. So we get some more information about Babylon. Sorry, my screensaver keeps doing that. More information about Babylon by looking at more of the context, looking at the context of the rest of Revelation. So this is to show you that we definitely want to be paying attention to the context when looking at a prophetic symbol. A lot of times we'll see explanations, but sometimes we won't. And let's look at a, a, a symbol that doesn't give explanation. Go to a couple chapters earlier in Revelation 10. Revelation 10. We'll look at verses 8 to 10 specifically, but I'll read starting from verse 1 just to give you a little bit more of the context here. So remember, John here is getting these visions, and here's one of the things that he sees in in verse 1 of chapter 10. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and and the rainbow was upon his head. And his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book which was open. He placed his right hand on the sea and his left on the land, and he cried out with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, or when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven. And swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, as he preached to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, Go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. I'll stop right there. What I want to focus on in this section is this whole book eating thing. First of all, this must have been odd, but 
there are a lot of things that were probably odd for John in this, this, in this revelation. But imagine if, if somebody told you, go ahead and take this book and eat it. It'll be sweet in your mouth, but it'll make your stomach good. That would be a little weird. But he's told to do this. This is something that probably, in your minds, you'd, you'd say, there's probably something symbolic about this. But what does it actually mean? Let's look at the context and see if there are any clues. What could this whole book-eating thing be talking about? Or what are some clues that will help us understand this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead and read it. Very good. So there's, there's a reason that verse appears at the end of this whole thing about the book eating thing, right? He says, you're going to have to prophesy again, and you're going to have to prophesy about these things. There seems to be some sort of connection there. What else do we notice? Anything else about the immediate passage here or the book of Revelation itself? Right. We even see in the section right before that one of John's main jobs is to write what he sees. Look at, look at these visions and then write it down and you're going to tell other people about it. And then we get this symbol about eating this book. So again, it seems to be connected. The idea of John writing things down or not writing things down and prophesying is connected with this book eating. Strangely enough, or you had something else you wanted Mm. Hmm. 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 Mm-hmm. Hmm. Hmm. I think there's a lot, a lot to what you're saying there. Yes, the the word is connected with the food metaphor a number of times in the Bible. Um, but there's actually, strangely enough, where did you have something else, Brian? Uh, the sweet part. Can you talk about that? Oh, you can go ahead and say it. Uh, the, the, the bitterness is that John has prophesied uh, bitter judgment. You know, the wrath of God is being unleashed on the unbelieving world. So, uh, that, you know, if you look at all the death and everything that happens there, it's, it's, uh, it's very hard. It's bitter to see all, all that death. At the same time, Part is that God is doing all And that's that's another useful part of the context you're pointing out. The book of Revelation itself is a mixture of sweet and bitter. And a lot of it is, uh, I guess we could say, is pretty bitter when you look at the horror of the judgments. But even interspersed in Revelation are these, these words of comfort and hope where it talks about this is the reason why the saints persevere because they're going to stand with Christ and they're going to be singing a new song. Or um, it's going to talk even at the end of Revelation about the new Jerusalem. And that's, that doesn't have any bitterness in that at all. 
I was going to point out, though, um, I didn't expect this, but I saw a little note about this. There's one other time in the Bible where a prophet is told to eat a book. And um, it's a very similar situation. It actually appears in the book of Ezekiel. Just turn there real quickly. Ezekiel chapter 3. <clears throat> Ezekiel chapter 3, we get a very similar situation. Just to give you a little context from chapter, chapters 1 and 2, Ezekiel gets this vision of God. He sees God and, and these glorious things in heaven. And then in chapter 2, God says, Stand up, I'm going to send you out as someone to speak to Israel. In verse uh, 3, God says, Son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to the rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. I am sending you to them. And then, uh, verses 8 to 10, the scroll appears, or this book. Now you, son of man, listen to what I am speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving you. Then I looked, and behold, a hand was extended to me, and lo, a scroll was in it. When he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and back, and written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go. Speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he fed me the scroll. He said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I am giving you. Then I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. So it's that same situation. You have somebody who is commissioned to speak the word of God to others, and he's told to eat a book. Or he's told to eat a scroll. So I don't think it, it takes too much of a leap to say, this is the word that he's supposed to declare. He's taking it in, metaphorically, by eating it. God says, you need to taste it yourself. You need to see the sweetness of it. And for John, you need to see the bitterness of it. You need to understand the gravity. You need to understand the horror of it. It's kind of interesting that he, in Ezekiel, even though it says the scroll is lamentation, mourning, and woe, he says it still tastes sweet to him. And I think even in the horror of Revelation, it's not just that there are some nice things that are presented too, but we, as Brian said, we recognize the justice and the victory of God. We say, yeah, it is horrifying, but it's sweet at the same time. We are going to see justice that we've longed for for so long. But the prophet, he has to, he has to feel it himself. He has to taste it. He has to uh, understand it fully. He has to get the full implications of that if he's going to be an effective declarer. So we're using the context, not just the immediate context in Revelation, but also the other parts of Revelation and the rest of the scriptures to inform what this symbol means. And that's the idea with use the context to interpret prophetic symbols. There are plenty of others that we could look at. <clears throat> Finally, and this is kind of minor, we don't need to say too much about it, but realize Another thing to remember about prophecies is that different eras of time are sometimes discussed together. Different eras of time are sometimes discussed together in a prophecy. And this may seem odd to us at first, but it's certainly something that is demonstrable. Like, for example, do you remember in the, we talked about that passage where Jesus reads a section of Isaiah, and he says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing? And we pointed out that he left out part of it. That's Isaiah 61, 1-2. You don't have to turn there, but I'll just bring it back to your mind. Isaiah 61, 1-2 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. 
And when Jesus brings that up, he leaves out that last part. He doesn't say this was fulfilled. The day of vengeance of our God is fulfilled. He doesn't say that was fulfilled, even though it appears right in the same section as those other prophecies. We see the same thing in Isaiah 9, 6-7. This is that section of scripture that we hear in Handel's Messiah. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace or on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Now clearly, part of that prophecy has been fulfilled. Which part? Yeah, first part about the child being born, right? The son was given. But what part isn't fulfilled? Yeah, we don't see the government. We don't see the government resting on his shoulders. We don't see him sitting on the throne of David and, and that, that government of peace. Even though they're presented in the same section, the eras of their fulfillment are not together. One more example. <clears throat> Joel. Yeah, you can turn to this passage. Joel 2.28. To 32. So Joel's right after Hosea. Joel 2:28 to 32. This is what the prophecy is there. Verse 28. It will come about after this, after this, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Now again, if we just looked at these verses together, it kind of sounds like this is all happening at the same time. But in the New Testament, this section is quoted as being, or as, as being fulfilled, even though not all of it was fulfilled. Some of it was yet to be fulfilled. Where was part of this fulfilled? The day of Pentecost, right? The people, when they saw the tongues of fire and they heard the apostles speaking the, the various languages, some people said, oh, those guys are just drunk. They're full of wine. And then Peter stands up and says, no, we're not drunk, but this is to fulfill what Joel said. And he goes back to this passage and talks about the, the pouring out of the Spirit. He also quotes the section about the sun being turned into darkness and the moon to blood. That hasn't happened. That hasn't happened yet. Actually, we see that repeated in other prophecies as something that's going to be characteristic of the last days, of the, the very end of the world. And yet, those two prophecies appear together. The timeline, the distinction between the eras isn't isn't clear in the prophecy. But that's just a function of how, how God wrote prophecies. He doesn't make the timeline clear. These things will happen in the future, but some things will happen uh, away from certain other things. That just seems to be one of the characteristics of prophecy that we want to be aware of. Anyways, so to close, when we're looking at prophecy, remember, especially when you see those symbols, you've got to rely on the context in your interpretation. There might be an explanation close by, but even if not, the context is your, is your friend. It's what you've got to use there. And then also remember that when it comes to the fulfillment, the, the timeline of certain things, sometimes prophecies that appear side by side actually are talking about different eras of time. And we want to be aware of that. And we also can get a little bit closer look 
a little bit better understanding of the timeline of certain events by comparing it to other prophecies, just like we did um, there. All right. If you would like to discuss these things more, come talk to me afterwards, but we're out of time, so let's pray as we close. Oh, actually, just a preview of next week. I'm going to talk a little bit about how to recognize figurative language. Talk about, uh, provided we have time, talk about the five steps of interpretation and then some common pitfalls when it comes to interpreting passages. All right, now let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for, thank you for today and thank you for your word. Lord, in some ways, uh, um, Lord, I, I know that sometimes I can think about the scriptures and I say, wow, this is just too difficult. This is, this is too hard to understand. And yet it's not. Lord, it does take, it does take care and uh, it does take work. But Lord, you've made your word to be understood. You've made it to be uh, equipping for us. The prophecies, the laws, we want to understand it rightly. We want to be accurate, but God, we also want to get the, the full riches of it. We want to taste the sweetness. We want to taste the bitterness of it so that we can not only enjoy it, but that we can also be effective declarers of it. So I pray, God, that you would help us, each one of us, to do this. Protect us from our fleshes that say, oh, you don't need Bible reading. Just do that later. I pray, God, that you would just make it, you would show us more of the riches, richness of it. Um, and I pray that you bless the rest of the service today. I pray this in your name. Amen.